Ephesians chapter 2, oh, I don't even know where to begin. I'll begin with verse 1. Now, you know this, Bible students, that when Paul wrote this, he didn't end chapter 1 as it was chapter 1. Now begins chapter 2. This was a letter. There's no chapters, no verses, no reference points like that in the original text. That's not how we write letters. The reference points are not even necessarily inspired. They're there added after the fact for our study and for our referencing. So when I say go to Ephesians 2, 4, you know exactly where that's at, and it's been uh, organized in such a way. So chapter 2 is not really a break. It's just where the commentators and original publishers figure out this would be a good spot. So mind you, he's in one long thought. And I want you to grasp this. I really do. I'm going to read 10 verses, and I'm going to try and help you encapsulate Paul's emotion so we can understand what he's saying. The best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible itself. Okay, the Bible's clear. It's alive. It's active. It's living. It does things. It discerns things. It shows things. It's enough. And so it's all right here. So let's read 10 verses, then pray. And I want you to just imagine Paul as he's writing. As a matter of fact, just go there with me. I think Paul is standing and can't even stand still when he's writing this stuff. I think he's excited. I want you to get that picture. Verse 1, and you, he's writing. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He goes on to then talk about the bad news. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil and demons and Satan. The spirit, verse 2, who now works in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Verse 3. I just read verse 3. Verse 4. But God. I had a biker friend. He was actually an elder at the Ashton Christian Fellowship, and he had a Harley Davidson. And his license plate said, but God, from this verse. He had spent his life as a gangster, as a thug. He told stories at the elders' meetings that were really good, not profitable in any way, but very fun. As he would chase down people with chains on his bike, and they would run out of gas eventually, and he would pull them out of the window and take the chains and then beat their car until it wouldn't run anymore. And his lifestyle was contrary to God, and he was by nature a child of wrath. But God, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name now, we approach your word real time, checking in, committing the past to you, Lord, navigating the future with you, enjoying the present, Lord, right now with one another. 
And in Jesus' name, I ask, Lord, a blessing on this time. We've shown up, Lord. We, we need to eat and we need to be fed. We also need to be challenged and corrected. We also, Lord, need to find ourselves walking in fellowship with each other. So I pray for all of those things to happen through the miracle of your presence, Lord, and through the power of your word. Lord, I pray that this, the preaching today would be simple and that there would be life change truth. That there would be encouragement and fodder, Lord, for the fuel to follow you well. Holy Spirit, do what you do now to convict us of, of sin and righteousness and judgment to come and to draw us to Jesus as he's lifted up. We thank you already for what you've done and what you're doing. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, how many of you guys in here uh, love a great love story? Yeah, I mean, love stories are great. You know, we love love. Most men won't admit to it. Like, you mean like Rambo? You know, like, like define love story. You know what I'm saying? Like, love stories, though, man, they're, they're, we like them as long as, you know, there's a little bit of guy stuff in there. And I was reminded this week of this one particular love story that's pretty famous, and it's called The Notebook. Most of you have seen it, and most of you know about it. And The Notebook's a great story. Shows these two young people that meet over a summer fling and they fall in love with each other and Noah and Allie is their name and they fall in love and it's rich and it's seemingly pure and they're following this love and all of a sudden Allie's parents find out, oh, he's just a bum, a local yokel redneck, you know, and you can't be dating him, we're high and mighty and so they break it off and take her away in the middle of the night the next day Noah shows up and Allie's gone and he's devastated. Prior to her leaving though, he pledged to her, I'm going to take this abandoned house, and I'm going to build it and make it awesome. We're going to live in it when we get older. It's going to be perfect. That was his pledge to her. She disappears. Well, he writes her a letter every single day for a year, showing his love, hoping to harness her love and to find this mutual love shared. She never, ever once writes back. And you've seen the story. You know why she never writes back. Her mom steps in, intercepts the letters, and never lets her read his affection to her. So she never gets this love, and Noah keeps pouring himself out. And in order to help him get through this rejection, he does it anyways. He buys the house, fixes it up. That's where it becomes a man story. He buys a house, goes fishing a few times, and does some work on the house. So it's cool, dudes. It's cool. And anyways, and there's a couple war scenes too, I think. And anyway, he does this, and he builds the house, and eventually knowledge comes into the paper through the war and things, and they find out she does where he's at and looks into his life and finds out that he did indeed do Everything he said, bought the house, fixed up the house, and is now waiting, rejected and dejected for her. And as she found herself separated from him, she was, <clears throat> excuse me, she was led to a lesser lover, somebody else different and somebody else other than the one who pledged himself to her. And this love story continues, and their paths realign. She sees his devotion and commitment to her. And she continues then to pursue her relationship with him. And that's the general idea of the story. It's a love story. We love love stories. And that story in and of itself even parallels the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, that when God sent his son to die for us, it was a love relationship with you and with me. That he loved us, but there was a separation. Somebody came in and said, no, it's not gonna happen. And there was an interception of God's love letter to us and God's reaching out to you and to me and the world around us and the sin within and Satan above. And there's this war. And, and we fail to sometimes understand God's love. But what does God do? He stays the course. He continues. He stays faithful. He buys the house. He pays for the bills. He restores. Jesus even said in John 14, I'm gonna go build you guys a mansion. I'm gonna go, I'm making a place for you. And this parallel, this love story is seen in the gospels and it's, seen so often in the movies and we love love stories we love action stories too don't we 
Rescue stories, man. Did you know that every action movie is a rescue story? Somebody's in need. Somebody needs help. Somebody needs rescue. Remember 1985 when Commando came out? Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, man, he was a retired Navy SEAL. Remember that? And he's just doing fine, living with his family. And all of a sudden, some conflict in South America happens. and Bombs everywhere. And the guy's like, yeah, you know. And then it gets good. And they pull you in when his young daughter is abducted. Now it's personal. Now comes the black camo paint, you know, and the sleeveless guns, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not only am I going to do the right thing, but I'm going to get my daughter. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, Liam Neeson had a couple movies, like 10 or 9 movies, you know, <laughs> Taken 2, Taken 3, you know, Taken Back, you know, Taking. Why does that appeal to us? I just need you to get this, this concept of a love story and, and, and a rescue story. Lord of the Rings, man, one of my favorite trilogies. The favorite, it's just a long story. It's a grand meta narrative. It's a long story. And that one's crazy because this rescue isn't even that they're rescuing somebody or getting something. They're actually taking that which is evil and destroying it for the good of everyone else. It, it's for everyone. It's not just for one. It's for the whole entire universe. And we respond to that, don't we? We get excited about that, and these stories draw us in and crazy thing about stories is we love Hollywood because they usually end well, don't they? And they? I mean, usually. There's a couple of them I've watched where it ends, you're like, no, it must be a true story, you know? It ended funny, you know? It didn't end, and uh, not all stories end well. Some do. I remember one time, a rescue story that I walked in, Adam Pearson, I've told the story, I'll tell it again from a different point of view. Adam and I went street witnessing to these role players, these vampires and these witches and these, uh, these guys and gals that met at uh, Lithia Park. And as we were uh, navigating this and debating with some of them, we sensed that there was two there that were getting rescued. They were wayward Christians that had been separated from their path and had been taken astray. And now we, were, we didn't know what we were there for. We were bored wanting to see people get saved. And these two, we actually took them with us, rescued them from these vampires and this cult that was happening. And we led them back to the Kia C. And we all got on our knees and we prayed and gave them Bibles and helped them on their journey. I'm not sure what happened. Only God knows what happened to them. And it was awesome. Rescue. We felt so accomplished. And we're drawn to a rescue. I remember one time a dad called me late at night. It might have been 10 and he, he said, I need you to pray for my daughter. I don't know where she's at. I think I know where she's at. She's not in a good spot. And I just began hearing this. I was like, what are we doing? Like, I'll pray. Let's pray right now. But then let's get a plan. You're talking about your daughter here. And we got a plan. I said, let's, let's, go, let's go find her. I feel kind of radical tonight. And, and uh, why don't you come on over here and pick me up and pick my friends up. And uh, the friends I grabbed to go uh, help find his daughter, uh, the friends are named 45, uh, 389, and, <laughs> and, and 22 even came with us. And a true story, true story. And I said, let's go. And uh, so we went looking for his daughter, and it took us about two hours. I'm not saying door to door, but we, were, we didn't know where to go, and we went to this particular town outside of cell phone range. And long story short, we finally were able to come into cell phone range to go back. We finally found where we thought she was being held up. True story. And uh, she was there by her own will, but not in her right mind. And so we knocked on the door. This was where I thought we were going to meet our friends. The friends are going to come out and play now. And two guys opened up the door mad, if you can just imagine. It's about one in the morning, something like that, in this outskirts town. And these guys come, and we ask if this girl's there, and she is, and she comes to the door. And I'm, here's how the story ended. We actually were able to get her outside the house. It was kind of difficult. And she came to the road, and we negotiated with her for an hour. Okay, come with us. Don't stay here. This is not where you want to be. This is, and I, I tell you what, with, with tears in her eyes and tears in our eyes, she said no. And she, she stayed, and she didn't go with us, and we had, we had to leave. And not all rescue stories end well. We realize that, don't, don't we? And we want the best, and we see the pressure, and we see what's happening. I need you guys to get excited about Jesus this morning. 
And I did get excited about the book of Ephesians again. We spent 12 weeks in chapter one. I'm sorry, not sorry. <laughs> and the point that we spent so long in there is because the foundation is so important in building a house and building a theology and building an understanding and building your story, the foundational storyline, the subplot, the backplot, the, the understory needs to be established. And our story is really a story of Jesus and his rescue of not just us, but of the entire world. It's a love story. It's a rescue story. It's a radical story. And it's not always ending well for everybody. How many of you guys walked in here and did your best to smile? Oh, at church. <laughs> and the reason you can't smile all the time easily is because you realize there's some pain out there. There's some people that are off the track. There's some people that in negotiation times won't We'll make it. It's not going to end right. There's some cal calamity and casualty, and there's some pain. You got to know that it's part of the emotion that God's given to you. You know, we come to church, we want to be happy. Yeah, you know. Listen, we're a full boat of emotions, aren't we? Okay, and they all complement each other, and they all scream and show and illustrate God. What God is going? God is the happiest person in the world. You realize that, right? The happiest person in the world. That's not the only attribute of God, though. Okay. He's also, I'm going to say it, he's also the angriest person in the world. What? The, word, the biblical word is wrath. Okay? Because he sees what's happened to the world. And he sees what's happening to his kids. And he sees the pain. You don't watch the news without having some wrath. Okay? You're made in the image of God. You don't read the paper. You don't drive on Highway 101 during summertime without some wrath, okay? And we want to think God's, you know, listen, he is all of that. The story, what's, it, what's real, and here's my point, and, just, and kind of as we jump into chapter two and building this as, as big as it's taking, here's a question, just because I want you guys to grow well. How many guys, when you think about the word theology, you just, you, you sit up straight, ooh, the study of God, theology, you know, oh, reading. Uh, how many guys, when you hear the word soteriology, you think, ooh, that's a big word, I'd like to know what that means? Soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation. How, how do people get saved? Oh, let's study that. Uh, you know, what about the word hermeneutics, you know, Her hermeneutics, which is the, the study of the Bible, how to study the Bible and interpret the Bible. And what about homiletics? Homiletics is how to take the studied Bible and then put it together in, in a preaching form and preach the Bible. You know, oh, what about eschatology, the end times, and all these big words. Let me just make sense of what I'm doing here. Proper theology, okay, the study of God, is the greatest love story in the entire universe. Proper theology is the greatest rescue story. And you might show up to a class or to a book or even to a memory of yours and say, oh yeah, I gotta learn these points, you know, I gotta learn this stuff and the great doctrines of the Bible, blah, 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 blah. What it's illustrating and what it's teaching you and what we're learning here, Ephesians is the quintessential of all Pauline letters. It's the high, it's... Right there with Romans. But if you're not careful, you'll approach it ho-hum. A lot of big words, a lot of run-on sentences. Paul kind of loses me. He's kind of, woo, you know. And it's actually, let me tell you just a little bit about Paul real quick. He's our author, Paul. Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul. First name Saul, changed his name to Paul. 
Saul means, oh, I'm the man. And when he got closer to Jesus, he changed his name to Paul, which means little, little. He saw himself differently. The closer you get to Jesus, the, the different, more different you see yourself. It's, it's a good thing. The closer you get, the more you realize, he's the one. Don't look at me. I'm just a man. One time, actually, they were looking to him. I think it was uh, in, in Corinth, and he ripped his shirt off and said, I'm just a man. Let me tell you about Paul, okay? Just, this is our author, okay? Because the story is being told uh, to the Ephesians in Rome uh, by Paul, okay? Before Paul met Jesus, he would walk hundreds of miles just to kill people who love Jesus. Okay, that's our author. Like, this guy was taken, Liam Neeson, the bad guy. Like, he would walk hundreds of miles just to imprison people. He's kind of crazy. By the way, when he did that, no one contracted him to do so. It wasn't like anybody wanted. He was a mercenary, self-deduced in his efforts to put us. Then Jesus hugged him so hard, he fell right off his horse. <laughs> Read the story. Uh, changed his name, changed his life. And uh, immediately, Saul, Paul, goes into the same groups he was trying to arrest people, goes in and is like, my bad, I'm with you guys now. Got any hoodies? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I know, it's weird. Three days ago, weird stuff happened. I'm just, trust me, I'm on your team now. I mean, the guy was so radical. Didn't even see, other people are looking at him quizzically and skeptically for decades, okay? He didn't see it. He's like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was weird when I killed your friend. Sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so we moving forward? I mean, he was just so nuts because he saw the things of God so clearly, this author, okay? No one believed him, and so he spent the rest of his life sharing the same message over and over about how Jesus saved him and how Jesus wanted to use him. One time, he made the Jews around him so mad that his friends had to lower him out of the city in a basket just so he wouldn't get killed. Like, the guy was making everyone so mad. Can you imagine that? You're a grown man. You're sophisticated. You're highly respected. Next thing you know, you're in a basket. Like, Don't drop me. One, uh, I'll see you guys later. Like, what's that? Paul, you got to go. Go where? We don't care. Just leave. Bye. You know, guys are a crazy person. One time he was beaten up so bad that he actually died. They drug him out of the city as dead. They got around him. They prayed for him. He came back alive. And his reaction was, let me go back in. Let me go back. And they're like, we love you, Paul. You're just a little bit crazy. You're not going back in to preach, okay? That's not how. And there was another riot one time in the city of Ephesus, and the great god of Diana was being chanted for two and a half hours, and Paul said, let me just go talk to him. And, and he had some friends in the government that said, Paul, they'll kill you. They don't want to hear you. They don't want to talk to you. And he's like, well, I'll just I'll tell them a story. He's like, no, go, hide. Listen, Paul, uh, while he was dead, he actually talks about it in one of his writings, and he says that he actually went to heaven. Check this out. Our author went to heaven and saw the glories of heaven. Okay, he was dead and in heaven, and he saw heaven, like trip out, came back to life, told us he couldn't tell anybody about it because he was forbidden to do so, given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble based on the revelations that he had. This guy, Paul, okay, one time he was collecting firewood after a shipwreck that he prophesied would wreck. Instead of having a bitter heart, he had a better mindset. Instead of saying, I told you so, he said, now I'll serve you so. And he picked up some sticks, and as he did, he threw them in the fire, and the sticks went into the fire, and there was a poisonous snake that went into the fire, jumped out of the fire, latched onto his hand. What's he do? Shakes it off. The guy's thug life. I mean, gangster, like snake into the fire. All the locals saw it happen. They said, ooh, that's a bad snake. That's not a joke. This guy, he'll, he'll be dead in moments. He must be a really bad guy. They had superstitions there on the, the island of Malta. This is right before they fed him a Malta meal. What? <clears throat> it's true. 
taking notes. And so they said he's going to die, and he didn't die, so they changed their mindset. They said, whoa, he didn't die. Everyone dies from that. He didn't die from that? Well, he must be a god then. And they began to treat him as such. He said, no, 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 I represent God. I'm just a man. Paul, the guy went through crazy things. One time, he was hanging out with his buddies, and a dude, a prophet, Agabus is his name, grabbed his own belt off of his body. So can I have your belt real quick? Grabbed his belt. Agabus took the belt and tied himself up with his belt and said, whoever owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. You know, it's like, I'm pretty sure you just took it from Paul, so we know, we know where you're going here. Interpretation says Paul's going to get tied up in Jerusalem. The guys around him, the gals, everyone knew it was going to happen. They began to cry. And Paul yelled at him. He's like, stop crying, you babies. I don't care if I die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm not, thanks, Agabus, for letting me know what's going to happen. I already know. I'm not scared. Wipe the tears off your eyes. This guy was so confident in the Lord. One time, when Paul actually went, got tied up, they brought him before the assembly, and he began to give his defense, and he said something that made them mad, and so they punched him right in the face, blood coming out of his mouth. At that point, he yelled at the high priest, got in trouble. Then he apologized. You guys know his story. Check this out. I love this guy. One time, he was ministering in a synagogue. That's where the Jews are, and he was telling the Jews about Jesus. This is in Corinth. Telling the Jews about Jesus. Jews about, and they got so mad at him, Sosthenes said, get out of here. You're done. And here's how, here's how he went out of there. They didn't have acreage in that day, and so buildings shared walls. And so here's what he did. <clears throat> True story. He said, okay, fine, then I'll go tell the Gentiles about Jesus. And he walks out the door and knocks on the door. <laughs> and it's some Gentiles. He's like, hey, you guys want to hear about Jesus? And he, start, he starts a church right next to the synagogue he just got kicked out of. I mean, the guy's nuts. The guy's, and again, my point is, is how many of you guys get excited about theology? Study of God, sit down, be quiet, children. I'm going to grow a beard out until it turns white and then write some stuff down. I'm Paul. Listen. Now he's in Roman jail, awaiting death sentence. He'll be released. He's not going to die during this sentence. He'll die later um, from Caesar Nero. He'll get his head cut off. That's how he dies. But he's writing this letter. And in chapter one, did you remember chapter one? We were there for many weeks. A long time. And he says, oh, the blessedness that we have in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we are so, it's theology and it is a rescue story. It's a love story of who God is and was and is to come. Just so you know, we're not so far removed from those events, Paul coming out of a basket because no one liked his message. Okay. We're not so far removed from serpents biting us and attacking us, trying to stop us from serving those around. It's the same story. You guys realize that in any good book or any good movie, there are many, many scenes. Have you, have you seen that? Okay. In every scene, there's the prologue, and then there's the monologue, and then there's the epilogue. And you know, there's, you know st- That's the way it is. Your life intersects today with the theology, the study of God, and what we learn in books like this is what's happening around us and has been happening, and it changes everything. And so when Paul laid that foundation and now segues into, oh, what else do we have in Christ? I'm blessed, I'm graced, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm adopted, I'm predestined, I'm included, I've been equipped, I've got it all. And he kind of clarifies now in verse one through three of chapter two, you're saved. You're straight up saved. This, 
The, the rescue, the plot, the love, the connection, it's actually happened. He gets to the best part of the whole story as he lays this down. And in chapters one through three is the story of how we've been saved as Christians. And in chapters four through six, know this, it's now what do we do as Christians? And everyone's excited to get to chapters four, five, and six about spiritual warfare and heavenly bliss and how to discipline your kids and how to live in the gut. What do we do? He doesn't get there first. He says, no, no, you got to know who you are and what he's done before we get there. And I guarantee, I can't guarantee you, I highly think that when Paul wrote this book, he, he wasn't drinking Earl Grey. I mean, the guy was fired up on espresso, straight up, straight up, chewing coffee beans whole. Because he saw... He knew he experienced the greatest. You ever told a story and you just got excited about it? Oh, 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 this is a good one. This is a good one. And everyone gets, that's theology. It's the study of our God. It's the study of our lives. It's the study of the whole purpose. It's the study of the whole point. And some people, if you're not careful, you believe the lie. You approach the Bible as this big, dusty book. And oh, man, I'm just going to go right to sleep. You know, listen, it's, you can't sleep through this stuff. When you understand that it's God rescuing you and God rescuing me, we have been hijacked and stolen and abducted and our prince, our father, our forever king would not stop at any point in his pursuit of rescue, of saving, and of finding you and me. He went to the point of death. Nothing would stop him. It's the greatest story ever told the very name Jesus, you know what Jesus means? You know what his name, name means? Yeshua, Joshua, God, God is our salvation. I mean, the very mission statement of God is like, what should we call him? I don't know, God is our salvation. Well, what are people gonna think? Exactly. <laughs> what are they gonna think of this man, Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua? God is our salvation. He's saving you, he's saving us. Here's the deal. We all need saving, and you can't save yourself. You realize that? And I, I got a lot of stuff to get through this morning, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to try real hard. Here's the deal. I'm doing a lot of theology and, and, and laying it down for you. We're going to take our time through chapter 2 as well. Let me just teach you guys the dispensations of the Bible. Dispensation means time period. Okay, Just like in every, by every story, there are scenes, the beginning and the middle and the end and all of that. Did you know that God has been writing this whole story? With, with bated breath and anticipation for the end days, for the soon coming marriage feast of the Lamb, this union, this joining, this reconciliation, the whole thing culminating into the fullness of the Gentiles when the world gets completely redeemed for those who have faith in him. And I'm going to say it gets completely recycled for those who don't have faith in him. It's coming to that part, and God is negotiating, and God is seeking, and God is going after those whose hearts are not yet his. How many of you guys have prayed for God to return, like last year? I did. How many of you guys prayed for God to return 30 years ago, you old people? Okay. I'm glad he didn't answer your prayers. I'm just going to be honest. Okay. I wouldn't have made the cut, you know what I'm saying? Like, God is negotiating, rescuing, using theology, the story of life the intersections of relationships in order. The story started in the first dispensation. It's called the dispensation of innocence. 
Okay, this is in the Garden of Eden. This is biblically known as the time where we should have been real good, and this is our best chance at doing it right, right? The Garden of Innocence, the dispensation of innocence, where they had no right and wrong. And what did they do in the age and dispensation of innocence? What did Adam and Eve do? They blew it. They, they blew it, and we look at him, and we look at them, and we look at each other and think, why would he have done that? Check this out. The dispensation of innocence then led quickly to the dispensation of conscience, Right away, they received a conscience. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and they shared that conscience with their kids. And how did their kids react to that conscience? Cain and Abel, hey, want to have a rock fight? You know, it's like, not going to go, there's murder, and then all of a sudden, Noah's in the land, and the whole entire world is gone cuckoo. God has to flood the earth, and even after that, there's a rebuilding in the Tower of Babel. Like, let's build this empire and do things without God. The age of conscience, the dispensation of conscience didn't work. It didn't work. This story goes, how are we going to find rescue here? The whole story. And this then leads into the dispensation of government. Okay, This would be what now would give us government and rules and not law yet, but government all the way through Abraham into judges and human responsibility. Did you know that in the book of Judges, it says that in that day, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That was the synopsis. And if you read the book of Judges, be careful. It's rated R. Okay? It is brutal. NC-17, for sure. Why? Well, everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And their legislation passed whatever they wanted. They just said, this doesn't work, let's change the law. They did what was crazy, and God lets this happen over time. Oh, innocence didn't work. Conscience didn't work. Government didn't work. Then all of a sudden, we see a little bit of birthing here, this, oh, now I see where this is going, and Abraham was called, and it's the dispensation of promise where God gives Abraham a promise and says, hey, I'm not done. I got a plan. Did you, did you know that when God called Abraham, he was a pagan, idolater, non-Jew living in the Chaldees, Babylonian Empire? I just want you to know that about our God, the guy who wrote this story. He, he, didn't, he, he called a crazy person okay, to be the father of faith. And how did that crazy person, Abraham, Abram, become the father of faith? Like all of us, just believed God. He believed the story. God gave him a whopper of a story, didn't he? Hey, Abraham, you're like 75. Good job. You want kids? Yeah, like 40 years ago. Yeah, that would have been nice. We passed that. That stop's gone. He's like, well, guess what? You're going to have one. <laughs> okay. And Abraham believed. And God said, whoa, whoa, did you just believe me? You just believed me. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're talking to me. Your God's kind of freaky. I'm, I'm choosing to believe you. He believed him. God says, whoa, you haven't done anything right in your whole life. You haven't been circumcised, you haven't tithed, you haven't gone to church. You're my friend, though, because you trust me. You believe me. He called Abraham his friend through simple belief. You know that God is telling the story, and when you believe him, bullseye, bullseye. Abraham became the father, and the promise was born. Now, now the next dispensation was when God gave the law through Moses. I'm just going to be honest with you. This would have been humanities. If you're still a humanist here this morning, maybe that's you. You're still hoping for humanity in that way to save itself as a, uh, apart from God through government or through legislation or morality or whatever the case is. The law was given to humanity. This would have been the time to actually figure this thing out. Tell us what to do. Tell us what not to do. We'll do what we're supposed to do, and we won't do what we're not supposed to do. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. And they even told that. They said, we'll do it. Throw this law on our backs. It's going to be great. And immediately they began to crumble under the weight of the law, and they couldn't do it because they were broken. They were, and you can't rescue yourselves. The law. And this would have been, again, if you're a humanist, and there are so many out there today. As a matter of fact, this is the same principle right now today that the world is operating under. Self-salvation. 
Just tell me what to do. People love it. People love it. Just tell me exactly what to do and I'll do it. Then I can be a self-savior. I just want to do it, okay? Uh, Buddhists today uh, are saved primarily by, uh, they're told to do, cease from desiring things and reach nirvana and you'll be saved. Uh, Muslims today are saved by living a life of good deeds uh, in the name of Allah. Uh, Jews today believe they are saved by repentance, a prayer, and working hard to obey the law. Uh, the Taoist is saved by aligning themselves with the Tao in peace and harmony. Saved. Good job. You, you did it yourself. The Confucianist is saved by gaining knowledge and wisdom, self-cultivation, and living in a moral unity with oneself. Okay, it's humanistic moralism. Um, the Hindu is saved by detaching from one's separated ego and then making an effort to live in unity with the divine. Uh, the New Ageist primarily is saved by gaining a new perspective in which you're now connected to all things as a divine oneness and you reach enlightenment. Uh, the Humanist, okay, this is like non-spiritual people. This is crazy. This is probably most in America we see this. The Humanist is saved just by being a good person in their own eyes. Think about that. How many people do you know right now that, that they're, they're fine because they're a good person in their own eyes? I'm better than that person, better than them. I'm actually, technically, I'm doing my best. Was it perfect? No. Okay, but you're going to give yourself a trophy anyways? Yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So you're not doing good, but you're going to trophy yourself. Gold medal. Yep. Okay. Just, just tracking with you. <laughs> you know, humanism. Yeah. Uh, the liberalist, this is, this is a real crazy one. The liberalist is saved simply by... Dying. They think, you know what, when I die, I'm going to go to a better place. How many people think that? I just, I just got to get through this life, do my best, and when I die, at least I'll be, you know, I'll be saved through death. And that happens at funerals all the time. I'm doing a funeral this afternoon, and the gentleman is actually in heaven. But how many people at funerals just think, well, they're, they're pain-free now. They're in a better place. Really? They got saved by dying? They died and were saved? That's what, that's what saved them? And the question is, how am I going to get rescued? The story, how am I going to get saved? Here's the other option, not Buddhism, humanism, Confucianism, Taoism, not any of that. The other and only right option is Christianity, where you don't save yourself, but Christ saves you. It's the only option, the only right option. Where you, and you, as we navigate through innocence and through conscience and through government and through law and through promise and through this age that we now live in, which is the age of grace, we find and understand that we are saved by works, but not our own. You guys realize that, right? The Bible says we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. The, the truth is we are saved by works. We are saved by his works and faith in his works. Not saved by our own merit, our own justice. And here's Paul standing up. Oh, 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 oh. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you, because I tried to save myself. And you're trying to save yourself. And I just met Jesus and he saved both of us. Oh, you got to figure this out. You got to understand this because you're going to do it wrong if you don't understand it right. You can't be saved by faith alone. You are saved by what your faith is in. The object of your faith is what saves you. You realize that, right? You can have more faith than me in something lesser than Jesus and it won't save you. You can have less faith than me, way less, in something as great as Jesus, you're saved. You can have a mustard seed faith in the right area, in Jesus, and it will produce eternal salvation for you. It's not a matter of how much faith you have. It is a matter of where your faith is placed. If your faith is placed in faith, you're doing it wrong. Okay, I have faith in faith. What? 
my faith in Christ. I love baptizing people because what they're doing is they're saying, I trust that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That's, that's, all, that's all I believe in. That's my, that's my deal. That's, that's my inroad. That's my VIP backstage pass. That's my story. I'm, I'm identifying with that. So too, as you take communion in just a few minutes, you're celebrating saying, yeah, I believe that Christ is enough. I can't save myself. I can't save myself. I've tried and it didn't work. Faith in the Savior. The final dispensation is the dispensation of Jesus being here. The one we're in now is grace where Christianity is offered to humanity. Let me just read verse one because I don't think we even read a verse yet. We need to at least say we read verse one. <laughs> if you're friends with me on Facebook, you saw the dialogue. I posted something similar to this message in a paragraph. It said, it's not faith in a moral system. It's not faith in a religious system. It's not faith in, in any system. It's faith in a savior that saves you. you, gotta, you get, your faith has to actually be in a saving power, not a high thought. And this girl asked, I'm not even sure if I know her personally, I probably do. She asked, she said, save from what? It's a good question. If you're a Christian here, you're like, oh, you're trying to pick a fight. But if you're a non-Christian, save from what, for real? And in verse one, two, and three, he gives us six things we're saved from. Six things that we're rescued from, like Liam Neeson would rescue his daughter. Six things. The first thing is the most important thing. Read verse one with me. I'm actually going to have the worship team come on up. You guys can make your way up here. I just want you to consider this thought. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he goes on to then talk about what being dead in trespasses and sins looks like. The Bible teaches that when we were born into this world, we were born dead. Body, mind, and spirit. Body is working well. Mind is functioning for most Spirit, when you're born, did you know this? Theology. When you're, spirit, when you're born, your spirit is born disconnected from God. As a baby, you're disconnected from your maker. How, how did this happen, inheritance? In, in the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die, Adam and Eve. And their spirits were broken. And every child that came from them from there on until today is born broken. As a matter of fact, have you seen this? Anybody in here have kids. Anybody ever seen a kid? You know why God made babies small and helpless? Because if they were big and strong, they would kill you. Have you heard a baby cry? Have you heard a baby cry? You're like, whoa, I'm glad that thing can't move. You know what I'm saying? They're, they are, they're broken. They're broken. Beautiful. I've got kids. I love kids. I love your kids. Don't, don't misquote me. But you need to understand, our spirits are not right until we are rescued. Until something, Jesus said it to the most spiritual guy in the world, Nicodemus. He said, unless you're born again, it doesn't matter how spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how, you can't save yourself, man. You got to be born again. You have to be fixed. And it's what the Holy Spirit does to you and does to me. It's the great rescue. Jesus said it this way, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. I got to go. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to accomplish it all. I'm going to leave. He's going to show up, and the Holy Spirit is going to go to great work, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Frodo Baggins, okay? And he is going to pursue and woo and save and heal 
and make everything right. It's what he does and only he can do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as the communion is brought out. Father Paul starts verse 1 and says that we were dead. The inference there is that we're not anymore. We were dead. And we remember those days, those wanton days where we did our own thing. But we're not anymore. We've been bought with a price. We've been born again. The greatest story is ongoing. The greatest rescue has already happened. For those who have faith, not in themselves, but faith in the Savior. Before we take communion, I need you to have an opportunity. If you're not a Christian, if your faith is in other things, I need you to have an opportunity this morning to say, I want to put my faith in the Savior. I want to put my faith in, in Jesus. Not in a system, not in a morality, not in religion, but in a person. Paul said, and you, he made alive. If you're not alive spiritually, if you're still dead, born that way, not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And you want to be saved right now in Jesus' name. Would you just lift up your hand? Just confess that to him by lifting up your hand. Say, I want to be saved. I see hands going up. I see people. Yes, Lord. We trust in you. Not our ways, but in your way. And there's hands up everywhere. Don't hold back. Raise up your hand to the Lord. Say, yeah, Lord, save me. Make it real today, this day, Lord. Make me part of your story. Save me. And Father, what we do now, we do in your name as we celebrate your son who saved us. We identify with the body and the blood. We take communion. It's just crackers and juice, but it speaks, Lord, so much more of what you've done. And we do for your glory and for our joy, proclaiming your death until you come. Lord, may the story of God, the theology, be evident in our lives. May it be present in our vernacular. May it be experienced in our steps. Bless us now as we celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand with me? And when you're ready to take communion, come down the center aisles. Take your communion back to the side aisles to your chairs. Tables are open.